you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to look to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 16 and 20, where we'll look at the very truths that undergird many of the songs that we sung this morning. That is, uh, we have a mission as a church, and it is uh, a marching orders, if you will, from our Lord, and it's found here in this uh, well-known, uh, familiar, but glorious passage, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 16 and 20. Uh, and I'd like to read for us this passage. So this is just kind of as we come to this text. It's it just, for those of you who say, "What hasn't he preached on this before?" Yes. Uh, the question is really, how many times has Pastor Henry preached this passage before? And if you don't know that, then it's worth preaching again. Uh, it is uh, no. I feel like a, a, uh, like Peter in Second Peter uh, one chapter one, where he kind of says, you know, I it's my it's his duty as a pastor to remind you. He's happy to remind uh, the believers in Asia Minor uh, of the very truths that they had learned from him. And uh, many times, this, uh, as a well-known pastor. <laughs> um, that once said uh, in, to me or to, uh, to those of us that were listening to him, he says, you know, it feels like uh, under his ministry of preaching, he's probably said all that he, the Bible really sees, all the major themes of the Bible he said in five years. And after five years, he's simply reminding them. And uh, since it's, those of you that have been here for five years, you're just going to be reminded this morning. And uh, it's as a New Year message, uh, hopefully we remind you of something that you already know if you've been here for walking with us, and that it would just encourage your heart, just remind us, this, yes, this is why we're here. You know, well, there are many reasons why we're here on this world. We may say, why am I here? Why are we here? Well, this passage reminds us of why we're here. Why did God leave his church on earth? What is this church, San Francisco Bible Church, all about? And uh, that it would excite you and just make you uh, passionate, and that you say, yes, amen. Uh, this is why I am here. Now, why am I part of this church? All right, let's uh, look at Matthew 28, verse 16, 20. A short passage, so I'll read it for us, and, and then we can pray. The Word of God says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had des- designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and pray that your, your spirit would be our teacher this morning. Um, Lord, help us weak, frail human beings, oh, so readily distracted, so readily given to a, a a disorderly life, sinful lives. But Father, you entrust to us, your church, your people, this great and glorious task to make disciples of all the nations. Father, we, we thank you for this charge. We know that we are not worthy of this charge. But Lord, you are worthy for the, us to live for this task, that we would do our, give our best in dependence upon your grace to fulfill the great commission for the glory of your name. We thank you that we can open up this passage once again and pray, Lord, that you would use it to, to stir up our hearts, to cause us to be reminded of why we're here, why we're part of this church, why we live on earth. Among the many things that we do on this earth, that, Father, that you would cause us to remember that this, above all, is what the church of Jesus Christ is here for. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
The reason I've chosen to come back to this text is because every year at the beginning of the year, we preach through a series called Our Mission, Vision, Values. We're reminding ourselves, what is the mission of the church? What's the vision of the church? What's the, what are some of the values of the church? Basically, the basics, the fundamentals of what we are as a church of Jesus Christ. We believe that by doing so, we guard ourselves from the temptation to ever as a church to rest in our status quo, to feel like, oh, we've arrived at some comfortable place and we don't need to do anything else. We can just uh, chill and relax, enjoy maybe the fruits of our labors. And because for some of us here, we have been here a long time and we've been laboring in the field for a whole lifetime. And it is easy, even near the end of our life, to say, well, you know, I've done enough. But we're not done with our task until the Lord calls us home on this short little life that we call. And if some of you are here, you're just beginning. You're just in the very mark. But even so, you may think, well, there's so many years ahead. But as we sung in some of the songs today, our life is short. We're here for 70, 80 years or so. Some of us, much less. And those are the years fly by and they pass on. Just like then every, as you get older, you notice the years just keep coming faster and faster. It's a reminder to us of how, how soon this life is over. And there's only so many more hours in the day to accomplish the will of God that he has, impressed, that he has entrusted to us. And so let's, this passage really is for us to, to get, make sure that we don't stay in a status quo. But it's also that we would guard us from moving in a different direction. As a church that gets older, sometimes we think, well, we've got that covered. We're, we're making disciples. Maybe we should focus on some new area, that the church should be about this. We should be about that. Maybe we should start this new thing. And there's nothing not wrong with starting new things, but that we would never stray from our main and primary mission as a church, that we would stay on this task to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We really want to preach these series. The first one of the times I, I preached this message, I entitled it, The First Things First. And that's what we want to do. We want to keep the first things first in Christ's church. And with that in mind, we come to this great commission passage. Matthew's gospel here is uh, written to present Jesus as the king. That he is the messianic king that the Jewish people particularly had been looking forward to, had been promised in the scriptures. All of God's promises are going to be fulfilled one day and have been, are, and are going to find its fulfillment in this one who is the king. In this final chapter of the gospel, Matthew has recorded the resurrection of Jesus in verses 1 to 10. And then he recorded the shameful response of the chief priests and, and elders in verses 11 to 15. Now, he arrives at how the disciples, in a sense, respond at the end. How will they respond to the risen Messiah? We, we've read in the text, uh, well, Matthew is recording the text, how the disciples responded when he was arrested, betrayed, and crucified. They all fled. How would they respond to this risen Messiah now? In these five verses of the final, uh, of this final chapter of the gospel, they record for us what's known as the Great Commission. And, that, and the main point of this passage is that we, as the disciples of Jesus Christ, we as a church of Jesus Christ, are to make disciples. We're to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We're to, and that includes, that includes, first and foremost, evangelizing, telling others about Jesus Christ. But secondly, and we often try, we tend to forget that making disciples, and in fact, the long part of often of making disciples is that we are edifying those who come to Christ. 
we're teaching others about those who have become believers in Jesus Christ about the rest of the truths of God's word so they might grow in Christ's likeness. They may become more like the Savior who died for them. And so that is what we are called to do, to make disciples. We could entitle, as far as an outline for us, five qualities of a disciple maker. But I, I wanted to slightly change the outline a little bit. And it's, it's this, because it reminds us that the, the main, tech, main point of this text is that we make disciples. But as we study this, and as I preach it, I want to draw out five implications of this great commission. Five implications of this command to make disciples for all disciples of Christ. All right, so let's take a look at these five five uh, um, implications of the Great Commission for all disciples of Christ. Number one, first of all, we find in verse 16 this truth. The disciple of Christ will be available. That first implica- the first implication we're going to draw from making disciples is that the disciple of Christ will be or must be an available Christian, available person. Talks about verse sixteen. Talks about the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to this mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, in Matthew's resurrection account, when when the two women arrive at the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, they are told by an angel that Jesus has risen. He's not here. He's risen. He's risen from the dead. But significantly, those these women are given instructions, and they're given a very similar instruction two times. Do you know what that instruction is? Let's take a look at it. In verse 7 and verse 10, first the angel's instruction to the ladies. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And then a few verses later, as they're heading off, Jesus meets them. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So this is very similar instruction is that they're to basically tell his disciples that they saw the risen Savior. But it doesn't just end there. They say they're to instruct those disciples that to, to go to Galilee. To go to Galilee because that's where they will see him too. And so it's a, and apparently it's some place where he had designated in the past. He had somehow revealed to the disciples. On at least one other occasion in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26, 32, Jesus had instructed his disciples that he would go ahead of them to Galilee following his resurrection. So he'd already told them, so maybe he told them on several other occasions as well. But from verse 16, we can tell that Jesus had told them to meet him at a particular mountain in Galilee. Now, they're in Jerusalem right now. They're in Judea. They're kind of where Jesus had been crucified. But he's telling them to go back to basically where for most of them, was their hometown for the 11 that were remaining. That was, this was their home, home region. As to which mountain they are told to go to, we cannot be certain. The scholars differ. But we know that, a mountain, that on a mountain in Galilee, many things in Jesus' life take place or occur. It's on a mountain in Galilee where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. It's on a mountain in Galilee where he healed multitudes. It's on a mountain in Galilee where he was transfigured. And where the three disciples heard the voice of God. And it was on a mountain in Galilee where he summoned and appointed the 12 disciples after a night of prayer. Now, perhaps the most significant of those uh, moments of, those, uh, of a mountain in Galilee was the transfiguration recorded for us in Matthew 17. 
There, Peter, James, and John, they, they saw the, the transfigured glory of Christ and heard the voice of God declaring who he was. But afterwards, Jesus commanded them, what did he say to them? He said, tell everyone what you saw. No, he didn't say that. He said, tell the vision to no one. They say, don't reveal what you saw about who I really am until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And now the Son of Man has risen from the dead. See, the resurrection of Jesus reminded them they could not test, that they could now testify of what they saw and heard, especially for Peter, James, and John. And Jesus had called them to go to Galilee, to that designated mountain, and, you know, and the 11 disciples heeded his call. They were available to do whatever Jesus called them still. You know, and that's an important kind of quality or what we, what we would understand is necessary to be disciple makers. We have to be available. There are so many things that go on in the church so many needs, so many things. And one of the things that, uh, has, <clears throat> that we've needed has been putting up a, a bulletin board in our, in our uh, stairway, if you hadn't. Have you made, some of you have noticed the changes. Uh, they look beautiful, by the way. And I, <clears throat> I know, that, uh, I know if you, uh, that many of you probably be willing to help out with something like that. But I'm sure <clears throat> not all of us were available, are available always to do that. But someone was willing and available and because they were available, well, we have now a, a new bulletin board. And that goes true. That's true for all aspects of ministry here. But it's especially true for the ministry of making disciples. We need to not only be willing. I hope all of us are willing to do whatever Jesus commands. But we also need to be especially available. Available to answer his call. I believe that one of the, of the, of the many hindrances to disciple making is simply our busyness in life. We live in a very major city. It's often very fast-paced, and we get busy. I don't know anyone who says, well, I'm not busy. You know, we like to tell, oh, I'm so busy. I'm busy with this. Uh, people come up to me and tell me, oh, you must be so busy, Pastor Henry. It's like, it's like, we just, we just, we're busy, we expect everybody else to be busy. But if we're all busy, then we're not available. Not available to make disciples. It's quite basic. Disciple-making requires an availability to do what Jesus commissions us to do. Will you be faithful and available to heed his call? Jesus calls us, calls you to be a disciple-maker. Are you available? We can be busy with life, family, work, school, and even church. While neglecting Jesus' call to be a disciple-maker. And as we begin this new year, I want us to all take time to re-examine what we're spending our life doing, what we're spending our years on earth doing, and ask yourself, am I being faithful and available to Jesus' call to be a disciple maker? Whether that's in the family, in your workplace, in your school, in your church. First, that's the first half, first point. Disciple maker will be available. But secondly, we learn a second implication, that is this. In verse 17, a disciple of Christ will be a worshiper. A worshiper. Verse 17 says, And when they, that is disciples, on that mountain in Galilee, they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. The word really means they bowed down before him in worship. But some were doubtful, the text says. 
their immediate response of these disciples as it's approaching. It's probably not, as scholars, a lot of scholars believe that it's not just the 11 disciples. It was probably this, the two women included as well. Maybe a, this is, might be the time when the 500 saw Jesus resurrected. But so there's most of so these disciples, they saw him. They worshipped him. They worshipped him <clears throat> and bowed down before him. This, uh, the last time in the Gospel of Matthew that disciples all worshipped him was actually in Matthew 14. If you, go, you don't have to go to Matthew 14, but Matthew 14, 28-33. Jesus there walks on water. You know, the disciples, he sends the disciples in a boat in the middle of the night. And around 3, 4 a.m., he comes walking on the water to them, right? And that's going to, you know, if anything happens 3 to 4 a.m., it's spooky already. But when someone comes walking on the water to you while you're in your boat, you think it's all is calm out there. It's a frightening thing. And then Peter does his crazy thing. But when, they, when eventually Jesus entered, walks into the boat, what do they all do? They all, exact same phrase, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. But notice what 1433 says. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. These, these disciples understood. And here in verse 17, when these disciples saw him, they understood. They worshipped him because they remembered who he was. You are certainly God's son. Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He's not just any man. He's God's son. He is worthy of our worship. As we earlier mentioned, Peter, James, and John on the, and the, on the mountain of transfiguration saw Jesus transfigured before them. The glory, his glory being slightly peeled away and said, I mean, being revealed. And then even, uh, uh, they, and they even heard a voice of God declaring, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And what did they respond? They fell down to the ground as well. So now as these disciples approach the mountain, they see the risen Jesus. They worship him because they believe that he is the son of God. Yet you notice in verse, at the end of verse 17, it's interesting. It says that some were doubtful. Now, they were not doubtful that Jesus has risen. He's right there. In fact, if we kind of piece together some of the other gospels, by this time, these 11 disciples particularly had already seen Jesus two times. Risen. In Jerusalem. So this is probably the third, if not uh, more, time of seeing him risen. So they're not doubting that he's risen. He's risen from the dead. He's alive again, that is. More likely, they were doubtful. It is, that is, they were hesitant to worship him. Because they were not sure whether he was still what they thought he was. God's son. Why? Because God's son had died. Yes, he's alive now, but he died. How can God's son die? They believed that he was the Messiah, right? And when you say the God's son, it's really everything that involves being a king. He died, and he died at the hands of the Romans and the religious leaders when he's supposed to be the king. And not only that, but here he is. If he's going to be supposed to be the king, if he's supposed to rule, then he should be in Jerusalem, not here on back in the, the podunk in the, mil, in the mountain of Galilee. That's not where the king's supposed to be. They were doubtful that he was God's son. They were somewhere hesitant to worship him. 
You can imagine there were some, probably the 11, uh, maybe all worship, but then maybe other, other disciples, yeah, maybe uh, were more hesitant. Not unbelieving, but just hesitant, doubtful. What we can learn from this verse is that, the, that those who worship of Jesus in recognizing who he is inspires for us an obedience to the Great Commission. Disciple-making flows out of a recognition of who Jesus is and how he is worthy of our worship. Disciple-makers are those whose hearts are so overflowing with the desire to glorify Christ that they understand that the most profound way is to make him known to others. In John Piper's book on missions entitled Let the Nations Be Glad, and I'm sure if you've never read that book, just put that on a reading list. But he writes this in this well-known phrase, that worship is the goal and fuel of missions. Evangelism, you could even say. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. And if you read that book, you can unpack that phrase, but just understand that worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. It, it drives missions. Our worship, and then the fact is, why, do we, why does God leave us here on earth? Because there are still, God is seeking out worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And there are some he's chosen on this earth, and we need to help find them so that they can join in and worship God. Because he's worthy of their worship. You know, as we gather here this morning and each week, let's make sure that we're, we are beginning ourselves, our worshipers of Christ. And let that worship drive and be your fuel and be our, uh, and be in a sense even our, the goal of why we make disciples. Not just do missions, not just do evangelism, but make disciples, evangelizing and edifying. Speaking the word of God. To, this peop- to, the, to, to others. Let your worship of him drive you to pray for and declare his glory to the nations. Now there's a third uh, implication of this text. Not only do we see now the disciple will be a worshiper, but thirdly, a disciple will be kingdom-minded. Kingdom-minded. We find this in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. So Jesus then comes up. They, some are bowing down, worshiping, uh, some are doubtful. But, and so his words here, are almost a response to those who are doubtful. Jesus came up, spoke to say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. They were doubtful that he's God's son, but what he says now basically clears the whole, you know, their whole doubt away. At this point, they all become believers, if you will. They're all uh, worshiping him. His first words confirm basically who he is. A lot of times we just preach this, and I know we just devotionally kind of read through it. And says, we emphasize God's authority, that he has authority. And that, that's truly what it says. But, it's more, uh, but what we read in the English is not what it means underlying. There's a whole imagery here that's revealed in this phrase. That's not just saying that he has authority, but it's really when he says this phrase, he says, I am the messianic king. That's what he's saying. When he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Because his words here for, the, for these Jewish listeners would have immediately reminded them of Daniel 7. You know, I know Daniel's one of those obscure kind of uh, OT prophecy books. And so many of us are not even aware of this, especially as uh, Gentiles. But for the Jewish listener, he would have heard Daniel 7, 3, 3 14. And I put it up here for you. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man 
was coming. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, this, uh, this passage, as you kind of look at it, so, well, is a description of the Son of Man, the Messianic King, who would become and approach the, the almighty throne of God, and he would be given, basically, dominion, glory, and a kingdom. He'd be given this, and a peop, all the peoples of the earth will worship him. Now, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament, uh, that uh, version of Daniel which Jesus would have been familiar with in his days, the Greek word translated, that translates dominion, is the very, in, the, in, the Old, in Daniel 7, is the same Greek word that is translated authority that Jesus uses here in Matthew 28, verse 17. So he says, and so as the risen Savior, Jesus is saying, I have, gone, have, a, have been given all dominion. To him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom. He's reminded that I am the fulfillment of the messianic king. I am the king you've been looking for. Jesus is the son of man to whom the ancient of days has given all authority over all peoples, nations, and men of every language, that they would serve him. Or as Paul would say, Paul would say in Philippians, that they would bow the knee before him, that they would confess him as Lord. Well, this, is ulti- will wait, uh, this still waits ultimately fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. But by, the, but by Jesus' death on the cross, the, the fulfillment of this has begun. Jesus is gathering those who will serve him even now. You know, Jesus' purpose was not just to save Israel, but to save a, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every language. His purpose would be fulfilled through his disciples. These 11 disciples were tasked to make disciples of all the nations. They did not do it on their own authority. They went in the name of the king, the one who has all authority. They, they do not serve for any temporal earthly kingdom, but for an eternal heavenly kingdom that will never be destroyed. See, a disciple maker of Jesus Christ, or a disciple of Jesus Christ, possesses a kingdom mindset that knows which king and which kingdom he or she serves. Do you know which king you serve? Do you know which kingdom you live for, you're trying to build? You're not here to, we're none of, some, a lot of people here on the earth spend a lot of their times serving earthly rulers. We serve earthly entrepreneurs, business people. We serve earthly teachers. We pursue the, the knowledge and wisdom that these teachers might, and the, the, that they, the, their knowledge they might pass on to us. And while your work, your profession might involve some of that, but in the ultimate sense, that is not whom we serve as Christians. We serve the one who possesses all authority, the one whom the king, whose kingdom will never end, the one whom everyone one day will answer to, the one whom we will dwell with forever. And I hope as Christians, every one of us here has it clearly in our mind, because when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you cast your lot with this king to live and die 
with him. We make disciples on behalf of and because of this, this king and his kingdom, the one who has all authority, Jesus Christ. We have this kingdom mindset that, that drives us. Some may doubt who he is. But brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have, we, have no, we should have no doubt about who he is. He is the son of God. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And this is whom, and, he, and his king and his king, his kingship and his kingdom would drive us to continue to make disciples. All right, let's move on to verse 18, or verse 19. It's not only a disciple would be a kingdom-minded person. Then we find in verse 19 20, the kind of the crux of this passage, the disciple will be a disciple maker, a disciple maker. This is where we find the Great Commission itself explicitly stated. And uh, <clears throat> I, I think uh, Pastor Ray told me that he even taught this on Friday night uh, to our joint heirs. So you guys already know how exactly what this is all about. The main, the main command is to, to teach and the participles to make disciples and to go and right, baptize. No, yeah, man, you're not. Man. No, you're wrong, man. The main com- <laughs> command is to make disciples to, and to go and to baptize and to teach. The three participles here that modify this, this command to make disciples. It's a, make disciples is the only command. It's why it's the main point. We are, if, as disciples, we are to make disciples. These three, these three uh, uh, participles here further define what disciple making entails. First of all, ba- uh, the going is implied here. Our English translations here, especially in the New York sense, says, go therefore. It gives the sense that it's somehow a command, that somehow we need to go. And, and though that's, that is uh, not the specific purpose or the specific form of the word, it, it catches the idea nevertheless. It's really better perhaps translated as as you go, while you're going. Uh, but the use of the verb here in modifying making disciples implies that one must go. We must go as a necessity. You know, just think about the 11 on the mountain of Galilee. You know, uh, they had, had, if they had just never left the mountain, because that was probably the highlight of their, uh, their earthly experience. They saw the risen Savior. They were there with the 11 or at least perhaps the 500 of their closest friends. It was a great fellowship. They were all just, they were having strong feelings. And they were just so, mm, this is the best college fellowship we've ever been part of. I can never find another church and fellowship like this place. Let's all stay here and never go away, go away to any place else. Let's not go out and stretch ourselves and go to a place that, oh, I'm not so comfortable to be here. But here's a new community I'm going to be part of. You know, they didn't, thankfully, they didn't do that. Because nobody would have went to the mountain of Galilee to go seek for Jesus. And Jesus tells these disciples, you need to go. And as you're going, make disciples. We need people who go out there. And it's, and it's not where to go. But it's, that, it's, it's really about wherever you go. 
as you go to school, do you go to, God sent you to school? Make disciples there. God, when you go to work? Make disciples there. You go to the gym? Make disciples there. Do you go to your family gatherings? Make disciples there. You go to your home? Make disciples there. You go to church? Make disciples there. Wherever you go, make disciples. That's the point. Make disciples. And by the way, make disciples of all the nations. Not just people who look like you. Not just people who you like. But anyone whom God brings along the path as you are going wherever you go. Secondly, we're to make disciples as we're baptizing. Baptizing. This is, this is the refer- reference to water baptism. Water baptism, just as we saw last Sunday, is the visible picture of a believer's identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a public expression of one's repentance and faith in Christ. It's why we're baptized in the name. We're, we're identifying with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we witness, when we preach, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we hear that we preach the gospel, and so, or someone else comes to faith, one of the things that should be encouraged immediately is to be baptized, to be taught about, or at least to be taught and then encouraged to, to be baptized, to be, because uh, baptism is a symbol and a close, a very close symbol that Jesus commands as an identifying mark of a believer in Jesus Christ. Baptism, I like to say, is the first step of obedience that a new believer should take. It's not that you take the step of obedience to be saved. You're already saved. But it's one of the first steps in your discipleship as a follower of Christ. And if you don't obey Christ in baptism, then it will be a hindrance to you. And it will open up the door for you to disobey Christ in other areas. You know, what are the reasons people say for not getting baptized? Oh, you know, I'm not sure if I know enough yet. I'm not sure if I'm committed yet. You know, just imagine how many times you use that excuse for anything that Jesus commands you to love one another. You know, I'm not sure if I know enough yet. I'm not sure if I really believe enough yet to, to start loving one another. It makes no sense. Jesus commands it. I'm going to do it. Get baptized. Be baptized because that is the first step towards obedience. A life of obedience, a life of disciple-making. Thirdly, disciple-making involves teaching, teaching. And this is the heart and soul of disciple-making. It's teaching. It's teaching the gospel to those who do not know Jesus Christ, to tell them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is this, that we are sinners but a, before a holy God, and therefore we deserve an eternal punishment, judgment in hell forever, separation from God. But God, because he's merciful, loving, gracious, sent us his perfect son, who, was, who came to live on this earth, born, uh, born and lived on this earth, and then died on the cross in place of us for our sins. So that we who believe in him, who put our trust in him, will have our sins forgiven. And that's, and that's the essence of the gospel. That's what we teach to the unbelievers. But not only that, but... What do we do? Disciple making doesn't end when someone comes to faith. Disciple making continues. We teach them, especially we notice what Jesus has, says here. Teach them to observe, to keep all that I have commanded you. I love that. So he doesn't say just teach them what I've commanded them. Don't just teach somebody that Jesus says, "Hey, love one another." Teach them to keep that commandment. It involves really a personal relationship, a discipleship. I, 
You know, I really haven't done my job when I just say, you all need to love one another. Disciple making really continues on when I encourage you in some way as I interact with you. How are you doing in in loving one another in your life? To challenge you and to ask you those personal questions. Are there areas there people you're finding hard to love? What's hindering you from loving? You know, that's why a lot of times we, call, we think of discipleship more in terms of one-on-one or small groups. Because oftentimes that's where the teaching to keep the commandments takes place. You know, a lot of times some of you can sit here and hear everything I say and just walk out and not obey a word. But you, when someone's sitting right in your face at the, or, or may say sitting around the dinner table with you this evening and they're asking you, how are you applying? How can we apply God's word today. Well, then it really makes you answer. It makes you think. Makes you think. There's that teaching as well. That means an advice, a personal, uh, a personal, this in a smaller setting. So, where to teach? Where to teach? Uh, be disciple makers that teach. Now, let me, but having said we are to make disciples, let me give you three bonus implications of the Great Commission. Bonus, okay? These are side, uh, sub implications, if you will, of just what we said. All right? I know it's a, I love minor subroutines. I was a programmer. What are you going to say? Okay. Uh, number one, this. If you haven't already, three bonus implications. If you haven't already, be baptized. Okay. That's number one. Okay. That's just a real easy one. And I know many of you guys could check that box off. Yeah, I, I guess I've done that. But uh, last Sunday, you heard from those four fantastic testimonies, God glorifying testimonies. But what was really cool, what's a practical thing about baptism is that, first of all, it gets you used to speaking up that you have a follower in Christ. It's the first time. You're going to actually be a publicly testifying to others that I'm a follower of Jesus. And we're going to be doing that. It's uncomfortable. You go to work to this week, I bet you tell someone, I'm a follower of Jesus. <laughs> Some of you may get in trouble, okay? But I can imagine a lot of us would feel uncomfortable at work. But it helps us get in that. And by the way, when our, one of the practical things about our baptism is it gets people prepared by sharing, writing their testimony so that they have at least their story. That's one of the easiest way to witness, too, to tell us, this is my story. In our world today, where all truth is relative, it's one of the fantastic things is that, well, then your truth is, is your truth, and therefore it's truth. And so they can't really question and doubt it. So this is, that's true for you. They'll say, well, they'll say, that's true for you, but not for me. But you can still share that, because that's your story. You know, but so it, you have a testimony to share. But be baptized if you're not already. That, that's the first step in being a disciple maker. Number, number two, or, oh, uh, number two is this. Uh, be learning to teach. We're a Bible church, so we're a lot of learning. I know you guys, some of you guys out there are taking tons of notes. So we're learning a lot. And it's wonderful that we learn a lot. But as, uh, as we come to realize, as many of us come to realize, we learn a little bit too much sometimes. We learn so much that we are not, we're, we're far behind the actual application of it all, aren't we? But, we? but one of the ways that we can apply God's word is to teach God's word. It helps us to, like, so that we don't just learn it, but learn truths to teach it. Try to share what you're learning with others. Try to share with your spouse later on this evening, with your children. Talk about it with your children, uh, in, with your family, your coworkers, your school, whatever the opportunity. Try to teach it to others. Or even in this church body, we have a lot of opportunities. Many of you serve in different uh, teaching roles, discipling roles within the church body. Number three, uh, be in community. Be in community. Now, that's a fancy word for saying basically what we used to just simply say, have regular fellowship. Uh, with other Christians. Have regular fellowship. Because the number one opportunity to make disciples is not going to be when you go out into the world. 
It's pretty awkward out there. It's, it's challenging. You've got to really pray. You've got to be ready. You've got to build relationships, build bridges. But the number one opportunity to make disciples is in the context of a local church where everybody's already a believer in Jesus Christ. We're all already open to hearing the words of Christ. You know, what Christian's going to say, hey, I don't want to hear what you learned at church on Sunday. Right? You ever hear that someone say that to you? No, I don't think so. Okay, maybe you're, no, no, nobody. Maybe you're a rebellious teenager. Okay, that's about it. But we have many opportunities in the church body, in this community, in fellowship, to share with others what God is teaching us. You know, you can't be a disciple if you're not building relationships with others in this church. Some of you guys are here, and you're just basically like, you're not disciple makers. You're, you're like disciple leechers. <laughs> because we're here, all we do is we just suck from the disciples. We just want to, be, to get stuff from the people in this church. But God calls us to be disciple makers. We're here to come here, be in community with others. Yes, so we can be blessed. That's true, no doubt. But our focus is that I would help someone else be a disciple of Christ, just like you're helping me be a disciple of Christ. Disciple make is not an option. Okay, not an option. It's the command that Jesus Christ calls every Christian to fulfill, and the disciple of Christ, a disciple, will be a disciple maker. Okay, that's the fourth implication. Now, the fifth implication that we see here in Latter verse 20 is this a disciple of Christ will not be alone. And these are just simply a, a, a promise. This is the, Jesus ends with a promise to disciples, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a promise of Jesus. He promises disciples that he's always going to be with them. I mean, and this is, they probably scratch their head at this moment, you know, because you're right here. This is, and this is, they, they still think he's going to establish his kingdom, right? Because later on, uh, when they see him again in Acts 1 8, they're going to say, Is it now you're going to establish the kingdom of earth? They think he's going to stay on earth at this point. He's going to start his, his, his kingdom on earth. But he says, by saying this, he's, he's implying that he's not going to be with them always. We now know that to be true. We don't get to see Jesus face to face like the disciples did. Some of us think, well, man, if I, if, if someone sometimes people say, well, if I saw Jesus, I would believe in him. I'd be on fire for Jesus. Well, a lot of people back then saw Jesus and did not believe. A lot of people saw people, saw Jesus and they were not on fire for Jesus. They betrayed him. You know, they they fled from him. The fact is, though, Jesus, even apart from seeing him, Jesus promises his disciples that he will always be with them, all the way to the end of the age. Why is that saying that? Because it's at the end of the age is when Christ returns, when all of Jesus' disciples will see him face to face again. The natural response to the call to make disciples of all nations is usually one of fear, right? One of uh, inability. It's, it's like Moses' response when, when God called him to go to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Who am I? I I'm not. I'm a, I, I, yeah. You know, that's what he said, essentially. Yeah. That's how we feel when we do what say. We're fearful, unable. But God comforts his people. He, he, he promised to be with them. In fact, uh, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 23, when God, when Moses passed on, God then, and the mantle was passed on to Joshua, Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 31, 23, then God commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. You know, that, that was a great task. Can you imagine being the leader of a nation? 
You know, we, we, we love, people love to criticize uh, our leaders of nations. But even the worst of them bears a huge weight of responsibility. But nevertheless, we went to lead this nation, to lead from the wilderness into the, into the land, to conquer it, to basically go to war as, as in, the, in a few uh, months and years. But God promised it to be with him. It's an impossible task for a man, a single person to do. But God says to him, I will be with you. You know, you and I may not realize it, but you and I have an impossible task before us. To make disciples of all the nations. To make disciples of those who don't want to be disciples. To make disciples of people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Who apart from any powerful work of the Holy Spirit are going to stay in their sin. In fact, they'll want to hate you because of what you have to say. That's the natural response. Because why is that natural? Because that's what I felt when the first person told me about Jesus. And maybe you did too. It is an impossible task, but Jesus promises to be with us. The presence of the Lord is a source of strength for his people, and he will be with us always. Wherever you go, Jesus goes with you. Whomever you minister to, Jesus is ministering with you there. We don't have to be afraid to feel incapable or to be, feel like we're alone, because he is our strength and our shield. He will strengthen us to speak his words at the right time. He will defend us as it is necessary. Jesus will be with you. Do you believe that? A lot of times we, we think Jesus will be with us. And we, maybe we we're aware that Jesus is with us. A lot of times we just use that as a comfort when more for uh, just our personal issues, our personal struggles. Oh, oh, I'm taking a test. Oh, praise God, Jesus is with me right now. Oh, I got an interview this week. Oh, I'm, Jesus is with me. Oh, man, you know, I, I'm going to go propose. I'll pop the question. Jesus is with me. You know, yes, Jesus is with you. But we cheapen what that means. Jesus is with us to make disciples, to go out and fulfill this great commission. Everything else, yes, Jesus is with us. But let's not forget, Jesus is with us for that we might make disciples and we might do it boldly, courageously for him, for his glory. Just like all the famous saints of old have done, disciples of the past. Well, these are the five implications of being disciple makers. And, uh, and just this is what hopefully will inspire you, encourage you, what you've already and many of you in this church are already doing. I know I look around this room, I, especially first service, you guys, uh, you guys are some of the main disciple makers in this church. And I thank God for all of you. But if the Lord, if it's the word, I know all of us have room to grow, room to improve. May his word just continue to encourage you uh, as you make disciples of Christ to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these, these words. Thank you for this challenge, this reminder. Lord, who is sufficient for such a, such a great task? To bring a, a message of life to a world that does not want to hear it. To bring dead people back to life. To help others become more like Christ. When, Lord, we are so, sometimes, when we are so far ourselves from being like Christ. Lord, who are we? Men and women of flesh, prone to wander, given towards sin, so easily dazzled by the treasures of this world, 
so easily led by the kings and kingdoms of this earth. Oftentimes so undisciplined, so lazy, so fearful. But yet, Father, you entrust us, your redeemed community, this body, to be entrusted with this great commission. We thank you, Lord, for it. We thank you for the words of Jesus that we have heard this morning. And may you use it, Lord, to strengthen us in our resolve. May you cause us to, as the new year begins, just like many of us have resolved our commitment to read the Bible, to pray regularly, Lord, cause us to renew our resolve to make disciples of Jesus Christ wherever we go, wherever you lead us that you might be glorified in this church. Lord, cause us to be known for nothing else as a church, but simply as a church where disciples of Christ, followers of Christ can be found. Lord, we commit this church, this body to you. Thank you for this upcoming year. May you do wonderful, amazing things in this life of this church, in the people and members of this church.